Tonight we're in chapter 23, and before we begin, would you join me in prayer? One of my favorite movies is The Fugitive. U.S. Marshal Sam Gerard chases escaped convict Dr. Richard Kimball through the forests of Pennsylvania to the streets of Chicago, down the corridors of the hospital where Dr. Kimball used to practice medicine. Somehow, Kimball stays one step ahead of his pursuers. Gerard, played by Tommy Lee Jones, is relentless. Kimball, played by Harrison Ford, is innocent. Dr. Kimball is being hunted down for a crime he didn't commit. Well, tonight's chapters could be entitled, Israel's Fugitive. For King Saul tracks and chases and plans to murder an innocent man. He too is a relentless pursuer. And yet God is on David's side and helps him stay one step ahead of Saul and his posse. You remember where we're at in the story. Saul, the ruling king, becomes jealous of David's victorious battles over the Philistines and his popularity among the Israelites. And despite David's unquestioned loyalty to Saul, a paranoid Saul views him as a threat. Three times Saul tries to take his spear and throw it at David and pin him to the wall. Three times David escapes. Finally, David realizes he can no longer stay in Saul's royal court. It's proving to be hazardous to his health. And in chapter 1, he begins his flight from Saul. He goes to Nob. He flees to Gath. Then he fights to save the city of Keilah. And that's where we begin in chapter 23. Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Now, Keilah was in the plains of Judea, about 18 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And it was being picked on. I don't like it when I see someone being picked on. It was harvest time. And the Philistine raiders, they were stealing the grain. And whose job was it to defend Keilai? In all Israel's territory for that matter. King Saul, of course. That's what kings do. But Saul was too busy fighting his friends and killing his own priests and plotting to catch David than he was to do his own job. He was so self-centered and determined to protect his position, he lost sight of the real enemy and friends. I'm afraid this often happens to we as Christians. Oh, another church in town, or a new home fellowship, or a freshly formed men's group becomes popular, more popular than mine. So much so that members from my group jump ship and join them, and I feel threatened. A brother from another mother, you might say, enters the picture and we become jealous. And what do we do? Oh, we circle the wagons. Our focus shifts from fighting the devil and building God's kingdom to defending ourselves from this new sibling. We start chunking spears at David while the Philistines march unopposed. Guys, be careful that we don't act like King Saul. Saul spent all his time and energy protecting his own position and his own authority. You know, he should have trusted God to defend his throne. If he had, God would have protected him. He should have done what God had called him to do. Instead, he went about trying to protect himself. Hey, we'll never win the battle if we forget 
who it is we're supposed to be fighting. Verse 2, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? You see, when he was told that the Philistines had attacked Keilah, it would have been easy for David to have jumped to one of two wrong conclusions. He could have said, Oh, that's Saul's job, not mine. I'm just going to stay out of it. Or he could have said, Saul, if he won't do it, I'll just do it. On the one hand, he could have been guilty of apathy. On the other hand, he could have been guilty of presumption. David was guilty of neither. Notice David makes a smart move. Rather than jumping to any conclusion, what does he do? He says, I will inquire of the Lord. It's always good to stop before we jump and ask for God's direction. And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Look, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Now remember back in chapter 22 and in verse 1, David is in the cave of Adullam. He's hiding there from King Saul. And here his men are afraid that if they go and attack the Philistines, they're going to be exposed. Saul will know where they are. They'll become a target for Saul. And David doesn't disagree with them. Unlike Saul, he wasn't a tyrant. He hadn't turned a deaf ear to his men. It wasn't his way or the highway. He takes the advice of his men to heart. They're right. You know, I could be wrong. And so he prays again. Boy, that's a big man who can say, I might be wrong. David goes back to the Lord. He could have misunderstood the Lord, so he goes back and he prays again. David was such a different type of leader than Saul. Then David inquired of the Lord once again, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, And took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now it happened when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. And Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Apparently this is exactly what David's men had feared, that their defense of Keilah would expose them to Saul's attack. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. David grabs this ephod, this priestly garment, and he begins to beseech the Lord for wisdom. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? You'd think the men of Keilah would be grateful for what David had done for them. (laughs) Not so. For the Lord said, they will deliver you. They're going to turn you over. They're going to turn their back on you quickly. And so David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah. 
and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. But note the number of David's followers here has increased. It's grown by 50% since the last tally. From 400 to now 600. People were tiring of Saul's tyranny. He's a madman, and I'm sure he treated other people just as he had treated David. Well, verse 14 tells us, And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph, which was just west of the Dead Sea. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. Saul tabled his other duties. His sole pursuit was to track down David, that evil green monster called Envy got control of Saul's life. He's traipsing around a barren wilderness of the Dead Sea while affairs of state go unnoticed. His whole goal in life is to kill David. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. What wonderful wording. He strengthened his hand in God. David needs some encouragement here. And it arrives in the form of an old friend named Jonathan. I love what Jonathan did for David. He strengthened his hand in God. Do you have a friend that strengthens your hand in God? If not, you need one. You need someone who will remind you of God's promises. You need someone that will strengthen your faith. You need someone who will get your eyes off of your problems and back on God. You need someone in your life who will strengthen your hand in God. Jonathan rallied David's faith. In the brief time of fellowship they had with each other, it refocused David on God's faithfulness, his unfailing promises. This is the power of a godly friendship. You know, it's been said, friends double our joys and divide our griefs. There have been so many times in my life when I've been down, when I've been discouraged, but God has been faithful to send a a friend, a comforting friend across my path to pick me up and get my eyes back where they need to be. Well, Jonathan said to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in strongholds in the woods, in the hill of Hakalah, which is on the south of Jezamont? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. You'd rather have Jonathan as a friend than the Ziphites. And Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Please go and find out for sure, and see the place where his hideout is, and who has seen him there, for I am told he is very crafty. Oh my, Saul was the crafty one. See therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides, 
And come back to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And it shall be, if he is in the land, that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. So they arose, and they went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain on the south of Jezimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David. Notice the Ziphites were playing both sides here. They were telling Saul what he wanted to hear, and then they would come back and report to David what he wanted to hear. Therefore, he went down to the rock, and he stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. And all these places that are mentioned belong to what Israelis today call the Negev. Ever heard that word? It's a Hebrew word which means south. In 1867, Mark Twain paid a visit to the land of Israel, and he gave this description of the Negev, a desolation that not even imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. Years of arid weather, erosion, have turned the Negev into mostly desert. But in biblical times, there was some forest, and there was some vegetation, and there were some places where David could retreat and hide out. Both then and now, the temperature in the Negev can soar, upwards of 120 degrees at times. Psalm 63 is prefaced, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. It was probably written on a hot day down in the wilderness of Maon. And in Psalm 63, David writes, My soul thirsts for you, O Lord, in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Well, Saul heard that David was down in Maon. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. Saul had outmaneuvered David, and he just about had him surrounded. When suddenly God comes to the rescue, an act of providence saves David. Verse 27 But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hasten and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines, so they called that place the Rock of Escape. Psalm 54 is another psalm that is set in this passage of Scripture. It's prefaced, A contemplation of David... When the Ziphites went and said to Saul, Is David not hiding with us? Kind of pinpoints it right to this passage, doesn't it? Psalm 54. You might read it when you get home. Here are a few excerpts. Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. For strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble. And my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. And indeed, God did deliver him out of trouble that day. Verse 29 tells us, Then David went up from there and dwelt in strongholds at Engedi. And whenever we tour Israel, we always visit Engedi. It is a marvelous place. 
Today it's a nature reserve on the western shore of the Dead Sea. It's really an oasis in the midst of the desert. And Getty is such a beautiful place. It's a sort of a little enclave of vegetation right there in the midst of the barren Dead Sea area. It's one of my favorite stops. There's fresh water and there's palm trees and there's bulrushes blowing in the breeze and waterfalls and all kinds of wildlife. And Getty is a beautiful place and no doubt one of the places that David hid out from Saul. You know, many of David's phrases from the Psalms, I think, come from his time in Engedi. Here are a few examples. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. He may have written that as he was watching a couple of deer lapping up the water out of a waterfall nearby. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on high places. And you can go to Engedi and you can look up on the rocks that surround the oasis and there are all kinds of animals that are, you know, for us, we'd barely be able to, to walk along those ledges, but they have those solid feet and those steady gates where they can climb all around the rocks and be secure. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. And there are numerous caves all over the cliffs above En Gedi. They're the perfect shelter from heat and wind, and rain, and Saul. They provide him the Israel's fugitive, the shelter that he needs. Well, chapter 24 begins. Now it happened, when Saul had returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. And today, when you go to En Gedi, you'll notice the ibex, or the wild mountain goats. They still roam the cliffs of En Gedi, and sometimes they don't just roam the cliffs. Sometimes they come down into the parking lot to eat the trash you leave behind. The rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. In other words, Saul stops for a potty break. (laughs) Did you know that in ancient times, constipation was known as the curse of the kings? It's true. Apparently, the king's rich foods and the stress of his job made constipation a common ailment among royalty. Evidently, Saul had the opposite problem. He ducked into a cave to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Oh, my. The lookout spotted Saul's troops. David ordered his men to hide in these caves above En Gedi. Saul's caravan stops right in front of the cave that David and his chief leaders occupy. Talk about drama. Here it is. This is amazing. David can't believe it. Saul is just a few yards away. And when Saul comes in out of the bright sunlight into that dark cave, he can't see David's men in the shadows. His grunts must have drowned out their whispers. Verse 4 says, Then the men of David said to him, 
This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. David, what an answer to prayer. God has arranged this encounter. Constipation is on our side. Here's an opportunity, David, for you to kill Saul before he kills you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Understand, the borders of a king or priest's robe represented their authority. And to clip off the corner of a robe was actually an insult. It would be the equivalent of our slap in the face. A mockery of his office. David didn't kill Saul, but there was obviously a little bitterness in his heart. And he feels guilty about it. Verse 5. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. You know, Saul may have been a madman, but he was still God's man. And until God removed Saul, David's job was to respect the king. And David felt sorry. He felt guilty for having mocked the king and clipped off his robe. Remember, David was a man motivated by principle, not just convenience. David was a man who was internally motivated, not motivated by circumstance. And so David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. Hey, in our battle with wickedness, we need to remember that a good cause doesn't justify wicked tactics. A good cause doesn't justify wicked tactics. Our enemy beats us. Only when he gets us to act like him. As Romans 12 verse 21 tells us, overcome evil with good. Don't fight evil for evil. Overcome evil with good. In his book, A Tale of Three Kings, I recommend it. It's a wonderful book. Gene Edwards imagines the conversation between one of David's men, Joab, and David himself after Saul had left the cave. Listen to these words. Joab complains. Why? David, why? Many times he almost speared you in the castle. Finally, you run away. Now for years, you've been nothing but a rabbit for him to chase. Furthermore, the whole world believes the lies he tells about you. He has come hunting every cave and pit and hole to find you and kill you like a dog. But tonight, you had him at the end of his own spear. And you did nothing. Look at us. We're animals again. Less than an hour ago, you could have freed us all. Why, David? Why did you not end these years of misery? There was a long silence. David slowly and with a gentleness said, Because once, long ago, he was not mad. He was young. He was great. Great in the eyes of God and men. And it was God who made him king. God not men. Joab blazed back. But now he's mad, and God is no longer with him. And David, he will yet kill you. This time, it was David's answer that blazed with fire. 
he said. Better he kill me than I learn his ways. Better he kill me than I become as he is. I shall not practice the ways that cause kings to go mad. I will not throw spears nor allow hatred to grow in my heart. I will not avenge. Not now, not ever. And Gene Edwards concludes, That night, men went to bed on cold, wet stone and muttered about their leaders' distorted, masochistic views of relationships to kings. Angels went to bed that night too and dreamed in the afterglow of that rare, rare day that God might yet be able to give His authority to a trustworthy vessel. Our enemy beats us only when he causes us to act like him. Verse 8. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and he called out to Saul, saying, My lord the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David stopped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. But my eye spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. He held it up and shook it. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, knowing see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. And I can see Saul yanking at his robe, you know, looking around, checking to see if that piece really matched with the cut in his robe, and it did. Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. In other words, wicked is as wicked does. Attitudes reveal themselves in actions. But David is just the opposite. David plays by God's rules. Even when the enemy doesn't, he says, but my hand shall not be against you. And notice he says it twice for emphasis. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? In other words, I'm no threat to you, king. I'm just a dead dog. I'm just a flea. Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. David believes that vengeance belongs to the Lord. That settling the score is God's responsibility, not his. Do you believe that? Do you believe that vengeance belongs to the Lord? David believes that God vindicates the righteous. It's not up to him and it's not up to us. Jesus said too that our job is to love our enemies. It's to do good to those who hate us and persecute us. And so it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me, for when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? 
Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul and Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul had said all the right words before, hadn't he? David doesn't trust him. David won't feel safe from Saul's jealousy until Saul is in the grave. Chapter 25. Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And Samuel was a much beloved figure. Imagine dying and the whole nation come to your funeral. You remember Samuel was the prophet of prayer. And he had spent a lifetime interceding on behalf of the nation Israel. No wonder he was so loved. He was the one who helped them transition from the period of the judges into the period of the kings. And it was fitting that the whole nation gathered together at Ramah to pay their final respects. Even David came to Ramah to honor Samuel. It seems that maybe he and Saul had a sort of a ceasefire, at least until they could get Samuel buried. And David arose after the funeral, and he went to the wilderness of Paran, which was even further south, down in the Negev. Now, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, which means scoundrel. And Nabal was a real scoundrel. And the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. Abigail was a babe with brains. I guess you could say she was hot and holy at the same time. Or maybe you shouldn't say that. I'm not sure. (laughs) But we're told Nabal was a man who was harsh and evil in his doings. And he was of the house of Caleb. If ever there was a case of beauty and the beast, (laughs) this was it. Nabal and Abigail were husband and wife, but they were poles apart. If ever a couple could have been classified as unequally yoked, it would have been this. Abigail was a believer. She was a godly young woman. Nabal was an unbeliever. In fact, he was a scoundrel. Verse 4. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, And greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shears. Your shepherds were with us. And we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them, all the while that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. In other words, we've done you a favor, Nabal, and now now it's time for you to do us a favor. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words 
in the name of David and waited. And of course, David expects Nabal to reciprocate. One good turn deserves another. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. The implication is is that David is just another flash-in-the-pan rebel on the run from the king. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and they went back and they came and told him all these words. And then David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. David and his men, they gird on their swords. They get ready to rumble. They're going to take Nabal to the woodshed. Nobody, nobody thumbs their nose in our face and gets away with it. Now, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and day, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Even his own servants disgusted with him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs. And loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill. And there was David and his men coming down toward her. And she met them. Cut them off at the pass. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. He's out for blood. Verse 23. Now when Abigail saw David, she hastened to dismount from the donkey, fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. And so she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard the scoundrel Nabal. (laughs) She's a wife that called it like it was. Whenever I act like a scoundrel, my wife always calls it like it is. Anybody got one of those wives that just kind of tells you like it is? Chickens? For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. 
Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek harm from my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespasses of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. She hopes that all of David's enemies will be bound up together and slung around God's head and then all his enemies just slung out of his life. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel that this will be no grief to you nor offense of my heart to my Lord either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. In other words, when David is crowned king, he won't give Nabal's little incident here a second thought. You know, why blemish his record, you know, with a bloodbath here? But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice And blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. Evidently, David had run out of restraint dealing with Saul. And Nabal would have tasted David's fury if it hadn't have been for Abigail's intercession. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, Unless you had hastened and come to meet me, surely by morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Isn't it interesting that the same person who showed such patience with Saul had so little little tolerance for Nabal? Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Saul chunks spears at David. (laughs) He chases him across the country like a rabbit and makes his life miserable. And yet David doesn't dare touch God's anointed. All Nabal does is hold back some rations. And David is ready to wipe him out. Isn't it interesting? With the big challenges... We all tend to rise to the occasion, don't we? We scrutinize our motive. We do our best to walk in the Spirit, to keep the flesh in check. It's the nables in our life, though, that frustrate us. The unexpected, the unprepared, the hassles, the injustices that pop up, the little things that get our goat. That's what causes us problems. Oh, we can deal with the Saul, but it's the nable that eats at us. He gets us angry. Before we know it, we're walking in our own craftiness and we're pursuing our own vindictiveness. A.W. Pink, he says this, The strongest are as weak as water as soon as the power of the Spirit is withdrawn. 
The most mature acts foolishly the moment he is left to himself. None of us has reserved strength or wisdom to draw from. Our source of sufficiency is treasured up in Christ. And as soon as communion with Him is broken, as soon as we cease looking alone to Him for help, we are helpless. This is exactly what happened to David. Thankfully, a wise gal came to his rescue, which is exactly what has saved me from many foolish, impulsive mistakes. A wise gal, my wife. Verse 36. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king, getting drunk with all his buddies. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. And notice, if you live with a scoundrel, pick your times to talk to him. Sometimes it's best just to leave him alone. And so it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. Talk about a hangover. It could be that Nabal had a stroke and was paralyzed. Then it came about after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died which made this wise and wonderful Abigail a widow. Now a marriageable maiden. A fact that did not go unnoticed by David. Verse 39. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord. You ever got news that somebody was dead and you just said, Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. God does right all wrongs. God does settle every score. Not always when and how we'd like, but vengeance belongs to God, not us. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. And when the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord which is exactly how Kathy responded when I proposed to her and asked her to marry me. Well, maybe not in those exact words. Think about this, though, from Abigail's point of view. She's moving up, man. Wow. Yesterday, she was married to a scoundrel. Today, she's married to the soon-to-be-appointed king. Did you know that's exactly what happened to you the day you gave your life to Jesus Christ? You went from being married to a scoundrel to being married to the king of kings. Verse 42 tells us, So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, 
attended by five of her maidens. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Now here's the take home from this story. Perhaps you are a believer in Jesus, but you're married to a Nabal. Maybe you are tonight unequally yoked in your marriage. Maybe your spouse isn't necessarily a scoundrel, but they are an unbeliever. And the relationship is tough sledding for you. I mean, there's times when you wish you could communicate with your mate about your faith. That you could share with them the most important part of your life. But you can't. You wish you had some godly wisdom at times from your spouse, but you don't. And there are many times when you've had to step in and save his skin. Maybe you're in that kind of a marriage tonight. There's an old country song that sums up your feelings. It contains the line, I don't want no more of the cheese. I just want out of the trap. (laughs) Maybe that's how you feel tonight in your marriage. But learn a lesson from Abigail. Rather than feel stuck with your spouse, she never felt that. She did two things. She stuck by her spouse and she stuck up for her spouse. And in the end, her life with Nabal helped to form the woman that David so admired. So if you're married to a Nabal, understand that God will use that relationship to form you, to build character in you, to make you more pleasing to the Son of David, Jesus Christ. Well, when Abigail entered her new household, she found that she wasn't alone. Surprise, surprise, she had a roommate. Verse 43. (laughs) David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. David will eventually add four more wives. And of course, this was a violation of Deuteronomy 17, where God commanded the king not to store up wives for himself. And of course, you know what the dad practices? The son usually follows in his footsteps, but to an even greater degree. Solomon, what did he have? 700 wives and, no, 1,000 wives and 700 concubines, I think it was. What was it? 700 and 300. There were a lot of them. In chapter 26, Saul's old friends, the Ziphites, are at it again, ratting on David. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakalah opposite Jezimon? Now the last time Saul conspired with Ziph to catch David, he almost had him. He had him surrounded until he was called home to put down a Philistine attack. It was an act of God's providence. Then Saul arose and he went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakalah, which is opposite Jezimon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. 
And these spies had done some great surveillance, for evidently they had gotten so close to the camp that they were able to pinpoint Saul's exact location within the camp. They actually zeroed it down, one of, like you know, one of the Google searches, you know, where you can kind of zero down right on what you're looking at. And they actually had Saul's bedroll actually identified. They knew where he was sleeping. And their reconnaissance set David up for a daring maneuver, verse 5. So David arose and he came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Apparently Abner was acting as Saul's bodyguard. Now Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him. Saul was at the heart of this camp, at the center of 3,000 soldiers armed for battle, and somehow David was able to slip in right up to Saul, sleeping in his sleeping bag. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, brother of Joab, saying, Will you go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai, brave, brave man, said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night. And there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. The king's spear was the equivalent of his scepter. And that's why Saul always kept it by his side. And Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. You've heard that before, haven't we? Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear. In other words, Abishai is saying, I know you won't do it. We've already been here, done that. I know you won't do it, but let me do it. I'll take the spear. I'll pin him to the ground. I'll strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. I'll get him with one blow. David, listen, listen now. David, that's the spear that Saul used. When he tried to pin you to the wall, David, let's use the same spear on him. Let's throw it back. With one thrust, I can turn Saul into a shish kebab. A salsh kebab. Gene Edwards, you know that little book I referred to earlier? Gene Edwards has a line in his book. I want you to listen to this. What do you do? When someone throws a spear at you, does it not seem odd to you that David did not know the answer to this question? After all, everyone else in the world knows what to do when a spear is thrown at them. Why you pick up the spear and you throw it right back. When someone throws a spear at you, David, just wrench it out of the wall and throw it back. Absolutely everyone else does. You can be sure. But David was not like everyone else, was he? And that's why God could trust David with leadership. He knew that spiritual authority was to be used for God's glory, not for his own gain. God had delivered his enemy into his hand, but only David would have concluded that God did so, not for him to take his life, but to show him mercy. Only David would have drawn that conclusion. And that's why he was a man after God's own heart. And that's why he was God's choice to be king. And David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed? 
and be guiltless. David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. God will deal with him in God's way. And I would imagine he thought back on Nabal. It was a good example for David. God dealt with Nabal. God will will deal with Saul. Romans 12 verse 19, don't forget it. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, David says, but please take now the spear and the jug of water that are at his head and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away and no man saw it or knew it or awoke. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. It was a miracle. Now David went over to the other side and he stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your Lord the king? David calls out Abner. He was supposed to be the king's bodyguard. For one of the people came in to destroy your Lord the king. This thing you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where is the king's spear and the jug of water that was by his head. And you can bet Abner and all the others, they spun around and they looked around the bedroll and they threw it up and looked underneath. Where'd the spear? Where's the jug? Where'd the canteen and the spear go? Then Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. So now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. David is saying, I've never been a threat to you. Twice now I could have killed you, but I didn't. You have nothing to fear from me. And then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord And let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. And so David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. And these two men, Saul and David, whose lives were so entangled, will never see each other again.
they will never see each other again, at least not in this life.